0: You're listening to the Hub City Church podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Steve, uh, not having to wear shirts all day sounds like perfect parenting to me. So, well done. Yeah. <clears throat> hey, good to see you guys. How are we doing? Good. Okay. All right. You guys are lively. I like it. Good. Um, well, yeah, we, I, again, I c- can't stress enough, and like Jesse just said, to, to memorize, and not just for an achievement. I know a lot of things can just be put into like a, almost a competition basis of like how many scriptures can you memorize and put to, to memory, but it's, it's really to put into memory so that it's put into practice. All right, it's to say Psalm 23 all the time. Every time you walk into a store, the Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want. So, what do I need? You know, like just the groceries. That's Costco, right? Just quick tangent. I can't. It's so hard to get past like all this stuff you don't need, but now it becomes a need. You know what I mean? So good. Um, but yeah, just really putting it to a, a, a rote memory that is con- repeated, right? And repetition is formation. Those are the things we say over and over and over again that are really shaping our heart and shaping our mind. These things are actually, they're doing that to us. It's not just because we're saying it, it's things that we need to be reminded of over and over and over again. So for, we started last week, but this week and then two more weeks, so for four weeks, we're just slowing down. I think in general, probably people always need to have times where they're just slowing down and taking a small but powerful passage like this, and psalm and just deep diving into it and there's so much we could say about it and just to remind you remember psalm 23 is written by david who who was a a musician he was a worship artist Um, he grew up as a shepherd boy um, and he sought after god's heart not perfectly right? But that's something he desired, that's something he sought after. Um, And he messed up in a lot of ways, Um, but one thing that can be said of him is that he did seem, in his stories, to always come back in repentance at some level. He did seem to, and a lot of that, as we'll see later, was God's prodding, because he leaves the 99 to find the one, doesn't he? So last week we looked at verse one, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And honestly, if this is all you remember of the whole week, of the, of the whole series God, that's awesome <laughs> please do that. Uh, what a powerful statement of surrender and commitment to gratitude. But there is more. Obviously, this whole shepherding uh, language is an analogy for how God provides for His people. Uh, we looked at last week that Jesus in the Gospel of John, he reveals that he is God in the flesh, and he reveals this also. John ten eleven he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd sustains and provides so that the sheep shall not want, and ultimately we even give up his own life to make sure this happens forever. So in the name of the shepherd sustaining and providing for his sheep, as we see God sustaining and providing for his people, we get to start to see now in this psalm how this happens. Starting in verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. So staying with the analogy, I wanna talk about sheep real quickly to kinda of get at what David means, and then we'll get into some of David's story. Remember, he's talking to people who would understand ancient Eastern shepherding. You're right, that's not something we usually deal with in everyday life. Um, so a couple things about that, and again, the, the, this isn't just like an academic research paper. This is stuff to just help us get into the mindset to see the richness of the language here. So in the Holy Land, Uh, The rainy, the heavy rain season is November to February. Sounds kind of familiar, right? This means the grass is actually full in kind of the springtime-ish, much like here in Oregon. And then the summer heat gets to it and it's unbearable and it quickly dies out and goes brown. So there's not much more than about three months of real rich eating for sheep. And then it turns into traveling the land, scrounging for morsels. The sheep are led to comfort before they endure a season of discomfort. Now, in our family, we have a dog. Some of you have named him. His name is Bucky. He's pretty pretty cute. And pretty early on, we taught him to sit, to lay down, and he learned those. We attempted jump and spin, but uh, we like to say that he's more of a looker than a learner. Um, But apparently, you cannot make sheep lie down. You can't make them do it. Right, this is not like teaching them a command or pressing gently down on their backside. Sheep lie down when they are full, when they are satisfied. When they have eaten their fill and their body goes into major digestive mode, they lie down completely satisfied. I ha- on Friday night, I had some of the best sourdough pizza I've ever had and we were about to, like literally five feet away from us, we ate outside, we were supposed to have a bonfire with s'mores and I woke up 20 minutes later. Like I don't know what happened, but apparently I know what sheep are going through. (laughs) You just pass out. But the only way they can have the presence of mind to eat all they can, undistracted, to be able to get to that state is because of the watchful eye of the shepherd. There's no predator animals lurking nearby. There's no biting insects bothering the sheep, and they've been led to plenty of food. Sheep lie down because they are safe, secure, and watched over. They can lie down because they trust the shepherd completely. Now, think of an ancient uh, shepherd, right, or even just a shepherd today in the East. Think of the shepherd. It is the shepherd's duty to lead the sheep in the right season to the fullest pasture they can find. And I would be I would imagine if this is their vocation, there'd be a little more satisfying as a shepherd to look out at your flock and to see them all lying down all satisfied. Right? That's a good feeling. Much like providing ample food supply, there's also the matter of water. What does the scripture say? He leads me beside still waters. As you can imagine, especially in ancient Israel, there was usually not just one shepherd and flock in a tribe, let alone a city, right? So it was a coveted position to find a lush pasture also next to water. Often shepherds either had to double up their herds, or even sometimes different tribes would be higher on the totem pole, and they'd get first priority. This was called grazing rights, Right? They were, it was for sure a thing. And it could even, if they disputed it, it could come back to the tribes and the elders could dispute it. It's crazy. But it wasn't just water that was key, it was still water. Another fun fact about sheep apparently, sheep rarely drink from moving water, from ripples or fast moving water. They just, I don't know if it's the motion, the babbling brook, but shepherds often had to create little eddies. They had to create along the river breaks or find still pools of water so their sheep could take turns at drinking it. It's fascinating how high maintenance these simple animals are. But again, as it not only water but, but still water is coveted, if the shepherds lead their flocks to the same stream and double up the sheep, what happens? The flock would often get intermixed. Now imagine you're at Disneyland or like a crowded area, and every kid is wearing the exact same thing with the exact same haircut, right? There's a momentary panic of not only where's my kid, but who is my kid, right? And luckily we have solved this issue by giving a simple language device called a name, right? You can call out a name and often your kid will know their name. I don't know if naming all hundred of your sheep and then actually knowing, like them actually knowing it, is the solution for shepherds in David's time. Instead, let me read to you, there's this book I've been reading called The Good Shepherd by this guy, Kenneth Bailey, who's a pastor, author, professor, and he grew up with shepherds in lands like Egypt, Lebanon, Jerusalem, and he writes this. It says, the good shepherd leads me, he does not drive me, there is a marked difference. In Egypt, where there is no open pasture land, I have often seen shepherds driving their sheep from behind with sticks. But in the open wilderness of the Holy Land, the shepherd walks slowly ahead of his sheep and either plays his own 10-second tune on a pipe or more often sings his own unique call. The sheep appear to be attracted primarily by the voice of the shepherd, which they know and are eager to follow. It is common practice for a number of shepherds to gather at midday around a spring or well where the sheep mingle, drink, and rest. At any time, one of the shepherds can decide to leave, and on giving his call, all his sheep will immediately separate themselves from the mixed flocks and follow their shepherd wherever he leads them. Pretty cool. Like The sheep know the voice of their shepherd because they're familiar with it. They spend countless hours with their shepherd listening to that familiar tune. Just like kids know their names because you've told it to them from day one, sheep have turned their ears to the song and melody of the shepherd. Now, I would love to continue talking about ancient shepherding, it's pretty fascinating, but I think these are all just good insights into why David chooses this to write. If you know much about David, David has had a tremendous life. And I use tremendous specifically, right, because it encompasses the goods and the tremendously bad, All right? There was much victory in David's life, in kingship, in battle, in leading God's people to worship, but there was also much turmoil in David's life. Kings and sons trying to hunt him down and kill him, adultery, being complicit in murder, a very interesting, tremendous life. Yet here in this psalm, David is not boasting in his victories, right? He's not making himself sound better than he is. He's not taking the credit. In fact, he's lowering himself to being like the sheep that needs to be shown the green pastures, needed to be guided by the still waters, and trusting that God will provide. There's tons of stories. and If you go, just start reading First and Second Samuel, and you'll just see them all over the place. But David knows of what it's like to not know what your next meal is going to be. Feeling like a sheep out to pasture and there are wolves all about and it feels unsafe. So he's writing these first two lines to also simply say, God takes care of me and my basic needs, food and water. My God even cares about that. If you guys remember, do you remember in the Exodus story when the Israelites are freed from Egypt, they go across the Red Sea, what are the first two things that God provides for the people? first two things, the first thing is water, the very first thing is water and the second thing is manna, food and water, it's like, the, it's basic needs, right? But, and for humans, we all have real needs to live, but our lives were made for something deeper than that. There's a deeper need, and that is for God himself. So we, ha- we need our basic needs fulfilled so that we can continue to give our lives to him. For David, it's not just about replenishing and restoring his physical body, but he writes this in verse 3, he restores my soul. For David, there's always the higher purpose of being nourished, to be nourished and restored at a soul level. Now, nerd alert, this is, kind of, this is kind of fun. Psalms, as you might know, is broken up into five books, and we can see why he used this as restorative language. It's broken up into five books, and there's a lot of cool things that can come with that. But they correspond to the Pentateuch. Which is incredible, and you realize that Jewish culture was to memorize the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, and that they were given songs then to sing to help them remember all the truths and stories. So look at this. I put it on a slide. So book one, uh, Psalms 1 through 41, is all about dealing with humanity, creation, and human needs. Okay, it's very Genesis. Book two, so you can memorize these if you want or just, just know it. 42 to 72 is all about exodus, right? Dealing with deliverance and redemption. Go read those with exodus in mind. It's powerful. Book 3, Psalm 73 to 89 is very Levitical. Dealing with worship, how to approach God as a human. Book 4, Psalm 90 to 106, numbers, dealing with wilderness, wanderings, the ups and downs of life. And book 5, 107 to 150, is very Deuteronomy, dealing with God's word and hymns of praise. How incredible is that? Just right there. Like, how cool is that to break that down and to say, man, I can't remember all the stories and here's some songs to sing that bring you back to that, bring you right back to those moments to remember. Literal hymns of remembrance for the people to not forget who they are and the God they serve. And Psalm 23 is one of those psalms. And where does it fit? Right in Genesis. Right back to Eden, right? In the compilation of the psalms, the 23rd is bringing us back to Eden, back to recreation story, the restoration of something that was broken. David is acutely aware of his brokenness. Otherwise, there would be no need to be restored. David is writing whether he knows it or not, or not about, the, about finding Eden again. In his shepherding, God provides for basic needs and very real spiritual needs as well. And while, while we live, the, the soul, while, while we're alive, the soul is not separate from the body, right? Our basic, we're holistic. Our basic physical needs are connected to our spiritual needs. We are, we are a body. We are a soul. We are a person. Right? Restore, the word, can also be rescue or brought back, as in a repentant way. David feels like the sheep gone astray, like humans gone astray from God's perfect garden state he brought them into, and there's a rescue that needs to happen. I, you know, some say, I've heard a lot, that, that the gospel isn't until the New Testament. I tell you nay. I say the whole of the Scripture is ripe with the good news. David is not asking what could restore my soul. He's declaring he restores my soul. It's, it's a who, not a what. How often does the world, though, provide a what? Right, provide a what to be restored. Every product, every adventure, even relationships, comes with a maybe this will make me happy, which has become synonymous with maybe this will restore my soul. But restoring the soul is about being rescued from the self, not self-satisfaction. The Lord, Yehoshua, we know him as Jesus. He is the great rescuer. He heard the cries of the lost sheep. He knows the people's fondness, for wandering and he has brought back those who hear him and follow him to be the one to be one with him to be one unified family in his mighty name church would we say the same would we declare that Jesus literally and proverbially as he leads us to abundant pastures and still waters that he restores our soul that he has rescued us to his fold Praise be to God. This is who he is and what he does. David continues that this happens upon surrender to God's leading, the second half of verse 3. He leads me in passive righteousness for his name's sake. Who gains renown for the sheep's obedience? If the sheep come when they are called, if they listen and obey and follow the shepherd as he provides for them, who should the glory go to? The issues that we see in our scriptures have all been sparked because of the first insidious lie in the garden, that humans, too, could become like God's. That this great God is just holding you back, and in your surrender is keeping you from achieving God-likeness for yourself. See, the enemy took the focus off of God and his glory and put it on the human and self-glory. But that would be like a sheep being guided and provided for, showing up to the still waters and thinking, yeah, look what I did. Look at my bad self, right? I had to do it, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, boo. Cut it from the stream. David is leading his congregation in song that reminds them of the Lord's righteousness that only he can lead to because it's only found in him. His namesake is who he is and he has never been anything less than who he is. That's why his name meant I am. I am the God who always was, eternally am, and forever will be. And just ponder this in your heart for a second. A God with a name like that trusts his reputation on humans. Finite, self-focused, fragile human beings. Man, the love God has for his people surpasses all failures due to fragility and iniquity. God continually and unfailingly will continue to bring his people back to the fold, guiding them in paths of his righteousness, because that is who he is, and he wants that to be who his people are as well. So our Bibles are direct compilations of God's people being good and bad witnesses for God, and we see countless stories, not of perfect humans, but of a faithful God who continues to have his name dragged through the mud but will not forsake his people because of his great love and commitment for them. That is what his name is. Any parents in here ever catch yourself parenting out of embarrassment rather than what's actually best for your kid? No, not not us, a different place, right? Campbell's don't lie down in the toy aisle in Target, right? Campbell's don't lick hand sanitizer, right? But if you looked at our family on an outing on a Tuesday at Target, we would have a different reputation, right? <laughs> but the point is God has chosen a people for his namesake. It's his name that he chose the people for. right? God chose kings to represent him to other nations like David, and it doesn't always go so well. But God is a God of restoration. That is what his namesake is about. And if he just discarded any and every leader who disobeyed, we'd have no one to look to. But even in failure, he restores and brings back to the fold. Now David, David is no stranger to failure. Potentially his biggest failure, or at least most famous failure, was with Bathsheba and her husband. And if you don't know the story, you can go read it later, 2 Samuel chapter 11, but I want to give you a quick 30-second review, and I'm going to use emojis to do it, so you can remember forever, Okay. So, 30 seconds. David is king. (laughs) Israel goes to war. (laughs) Kings usually go lead their battles, but David stays behind. Hashtag, just be chillin'. (laughs) David gets bored. He goes out on his balcony and sees a beautiful woman, Bathsheba, washing herself on the rooftop of her own house, and instead of walking away, he gives in to coveting lust, calls her to his palace, and he sleeps with her. His adulterous state is one thing, and then on top of that, she texts him this afterward. <laughs> to which he replies. But then, and instead of confessing, he gets really creative. And my question is how is it that some of the most creative thinking happens in a sinful state? Right? Evil has perfected a lifetime of creativity. And he has her husband come home, who is a soldier, come home and be with his wife to make him think that it's his baby. It's happy. But this soldier, Uriah, is a more honorable man than King David, and he doesn't want to enjoy his time when his fellow soldiers are out there fighting for their lives. So David, when panic and only his own self-interest at heart, instead sends Uriah out to the front lines where he is struck down and killed. And he makes Bathsheba his wife. End scene. So hopefully that rings a bell, or now it's forever in your mind as a horrible emoji story, um, but it's a story after that that I want to talk about. So David is so caught up in his own namesake, what he wants, what he desires as king, and his own pride has blinded him so much that he thinks he has gotten away with this brilliant scheme of his. But the Lord is a rescuer. He sends David a prophet called Nathan to speak into David's life. And Nathan obediently goes and calls him out. But he couldn't just straight up like, call him out for David's pride was too great. And people get even worse if they get backed up into this pride corner. So Nathan shows up and tells him a story. This is 2 Samuel 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city "'the one rich and the other poor. "'The rich man had very many flocks and herds, "'but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, "'which he had bought. "'And he brought it up, "'and it grew up with him and with his children. "'It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup "'and lie in his arms. "'It was like a daughter to him. "'Now there came a traveler to the rich man, "'and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd "'to prepare for the guest who had come to him.' But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. You know, sometimes you can know the right thing but still not see the truth. David was so deep in his pride that he couldn't even recognize who the story was really about. God used Nathan to remove the blinders for him. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. This powerful moment drove David to repentance. When the story hit, David, the sheep who had wandered away from the fold, away from the shepherd and did much evil, he was found, and instead of destroyed, he was rescued. When sheep wander away from a herd and are done grazing and realize they're alone, they'll find some kind of shelter, like a rock or a bush, and they'll hide inside it, and they'll just start bleeding. They'll just start um, crying out to be found. And two things happen. The shepherd has to come and look and find the sheep before a hungry predator does and tears it apart. David was on the cusp in his pride pride of being torn apart, torn apart by the evil one, torn apart by himself, torn apart by the desires of this world. Listen, the evil one wants nothing more than the king of God's people to have hidden unrepentant sin that will destroy him and everyone he is leading. But God, great in mercy and love, went after the one and brought him back to the fold in repentance. Now, don't get it wrong. This is a rescue story for David and a devastating story for Bathsheba. If you keep reading in Samuel, God deals severely with David, even in his repentance, because there are consequences to sin. But going back to Psalm 23, with the story in mind, David is writing this, knowing this is in his past, knowing what God has brought him out of. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. This is what pride does, to trust in our own past, to lean on our own righteousness, and what we can justify to glorify our own names. David became so blinded by his pride that this this earth and satisfying the flesh was his highest goal, but those are the goals of men, not the goals of God. God is faithful. In his mercy, he used Nathan to bring David back and not let sin and the evil one crush him. God, the good shepherd, shows his power and goodness in the weakness of the sheep. And never is this more evident in the following section we'll look at next Sunday about the valley of the shadow of death. But for today, we're just going to pause in this and end with some very real reflection. The reality of this psalm is that we are all like sheep. When the sheep are leading, pride will take over, and sheep will do what they think is best— Sheep will look for what will restore them, what will fill them up with satisfaction, what will bring them peace in what is deemed right action in their own eyes. But David is bringing God's people back to say, listen, I know that will not satisfy. Living for yourself to satisfy your own deeds does not restore you. In fact, it can often destroy you instead. Repentance is realizing you've been leading And trying to sustain yourself, but then to turn around and allow the shepherd to go ahead of you and follow his leading. David is preaching the gospel here. He is that shepherd. I find satisfaction only in him. He protects, he provides, he leads, he restores. This is what David declares in church, is that what we declare. Do we live our lives? Do we love our neighbors and live in this beautiful city of Albany like a people who are satisfied in their God, who actively strive to deny our wants and desire to willingly allow Jesus to be our good shepherd? He is willing to lead. Are we willing to follow? I want to end by reading together Psalm 23, 1 through 3, the verses we talked about today. And I pray that this, too, can become our heartfelt declaration of who God is and the trust that we found in Him. So Psalm 23, 1 through 3, you can read with me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Amen.